Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, please take it out and go over into your New Testament to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 in your New Testament. It is not a big secret that the book of Acts is loaded with a lot of gospel preaching. It is loaded with a lot of gospel sermons. In fact, in nearly every sermon that is recorded in the book of Acts, there seems to be one specific topic that is emphasized more than any other. There seems to be one specific topic that is addressed more than any other, and that topic is, is the resurrection. It is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the main subject that is addressed throughout the book of Acts. And we see this as early as Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we can read about this great gospel sermon, this famous sermon that Peter preached to a crowd of thousands in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. About 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, the apostle Peter stood in the very city in which the Lord was condemned in, and he said to the people in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 22, he said, men of Israel, he's talking to the Jewish people, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Verse 24, but God did what? God raised him up again. God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Notice how here in these verses, how when preaching to thousands of Jews in the city of Jerusalem, not only did Peter mention the miracles of Jesus, and not only did he mention the work of Jesus, not only did he mention the death of Jesus, but he also mentioned the resurrection of Jesus. He also said that, yes, Jesus died and he was buried, but God raised him up on the third day. Peter preached about the resurrection of Jesus in Acts chapter 2, and he also preached about it in Acts chapter 3. And he also preached about it in Acts chapter 10 when preaching to the Gentile household of Cornelius. And then when you look at the Apostle Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 13, notice what Paul said to the people of Pisidian Antioch. When arriving in the city of Antioch in Acts chapter 13, and in verse number 28, he said to the Jewish people, and though they, and the they there is a reference to the enemies of Jesus, those who handed him over to be crucified. It says, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, Jesus was innocent. They asked Pilate that he be executed. When they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. 
And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Put that in what you find in Acts chapter 17. In Acts the 17th chapter, here we find the Apostle Paul and his preaching companions arriving in the city of Thessalonica. And in Acts 17 and verse 1 it says that when they had traveled through Amphipolos and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, that is, according to Paul's normal method of evangelism, he went to them, he went into the synagogue of the Jews, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Drop down to verse number 30 of this same chapter. Here we find Paul in the city of Athens, a city where many of the people did not even believe in the one true God. And in Acts 17 and verse 30, Paul told these people, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day. He has fixed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men. By doing what? By raising him from the dead. Brothers and sisters, these are just a sampling of the verses we have when it comes to this. There are many others that we could, could read this morning, but here's the point. The point is, when it came to the preaching of Peter, and when it came to the preaching of Paul, and when it came to the preaching of all of the apostles, the main thing that they emphasized to their audiences was, was the Lord's resurrection. It was the fact that the Lord died on a cross. And he was placed in a tomb, but three days later, he came up out of the tomb. That was the main thing they, they wanted the world to know. And the question is, why? Why did they talk so much about the resurrection? Well, why did they bring up this issue over and over and over again? Why did they feel the people of their world needed to know more about, about this than, than anything else. Why is the resurrection so important to the apostles? And why is the resurrection so important to our faith as, as Christians? Well, I want to submit to you in this lesson that there are at least three reasons why the resurrection is so important. First, the resurrection of Jesus is important. Because it validates Jesus. Specifically, it validates the, the claims made by Jesus. It validates the claims that Jesus made about his identity. You know, it is interesting how when you study the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you see that when Jesus walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, he made a lot of extraordinary claims. 
He made a lot of extraordinary claims about about his identity. For example, in Matthew's account, and Matthew was an eyewitness of Jesus, Matthew tells us that there were times when Jesus claimed to be the very son of God. He claimed to be sent by God the Father, and he also claimed to possess the power or the authority to forgive sins, and he also claimed to, to be worthy of worship. You go over into the Gospel of John, and there you find more extraordinary claims. There in the Gospel of John, you find Jesus claiming to be the bread of life. And you find him claiming to be the light of the world. And you find him claiming to have existed long before the great man of faith, Abraham, even though Abraham lived 2,000 years before his coming into the world. And then in John chapter 14 and verse 6, you find Jesus of Nazareth claiming to be the way and the truth and the life. You find him claiming to be not just a way to heaven, but he says he, he is the way to heaven. The implication of that, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus is saying, I'm the only way to heaven. I'm the only way to God. I'm the only path to, to receive eternal life with God. What he claimed to be the truth in that same verse there he's claiming to be the source of truth. He's claiming to be the embodiment of truth. He's claiming to be the person that God sent into the world to reveal truth to mankind. And when he claims to be the life, there he's claiming to be the source of life. He's claiming to be the source of real life eternal life, spiritual life with God. These are just a few, just a few of the extraordinary claims that Jesus made concerning himself. And here's the question. The question is, why should we believe him? Why should we believe these extraordinary claims? Why should we believe that, that he is all these things and, and so much more? I ask you that because anyone can make claims, right? Anyone can claim to be someone great. Anyone can claim to be the way and, and the truth and the life. Anyone can claim to be the son of God and, and to be worthy of worship. In fact, throughout the course of history and even until this day, there are a lot of people who, who make those claims. Throughout the course of history, there have been a lot of people who've claimed to be the son of God. In fact, I could claim to be the son of God right now. Let me ask you a question. What would you, what would you think of me if I stood in this pulpit right here and claimed that I was the very Son of God? What would you think of me if I made that claim? Well, for those of you who are members of the Monta Vista Church of Christ, I'm pretty sure that I know exactly how you will respond to that claim if you thought I was serious. I'm pretty sure that if you thought that I was serious, 
about claiming to be the very son of God, you would either do one of two things. One, you would either contact the elders of this church immediately and you will tell them that, that we got to find another preacher quick, fast, in a hurry. Or you would reach out to me through a, a, a Facebook message or a phone call or an email and you would ask me, am I okay? Am I sick? Do I have a, a, a fever? Am I losing my mind? Is the recent loss of my grandfather causing me to, to say ridiculous things? I'm pretty sure that no one would believe me if I claim to be the very son of God. The question is, what makes Jesus so different? The question is, why was it okay for him? to claim to be the son of God 2,000 years ago, but it's not okay for me to do that today. What makes him the exception to the rule when it comes to this? I mean, why should we believe that he is the very son of God? Should we believe he's the son of God just because he said so? I hope not. I hope we all have enough reasoning and understanding to understand that just because someone claims to be something, that doesn't automatically make that claim true, right? For example, I could claim to be able to throw a football like Aaron Rodgers or Drew Brees, but that doesn't automatically make that claim true. And I could claim to be able to dunk a basketball like LeBron James, but that claim doesn't automatically make it true. In fact, if you come to the basketball court with me at some point, you'll see that that claim is not true. It's because someone claims something is true. That doesn't automatically make the claim true. And for our young people who are watching right now, I want you to know that this is something that you really need to understand. For the young people who are watching this right now, I want you to know that you especially need to understand that when it comes to your faith, God does not want you to have a blind faith. God doesn't want you to have a blind faith when it comes to believing in his son, instead, you know what God wants you to have, young people? God wants you to have a faith that is rock solid and strong. God wants you to have a faith that is sure. God wants you to have a faith that is based on sufficient evidence. That's the kind of faith that God wants you to have, and that's the kind of faith God, God wants me to have. God wants us to have a faith that is based on sufficient evidence. And so the question is, when it comes to the claims of Jesus, what sufficient evidence do we have to, to believe him? What sufficient evidence do, do we have to believe that he is the very son of God? Well, I want to suggest to you that the main piece of evidence that we have been given to believe in the claims of Jesus is found in the resurrection. It is the resurrection. This is the very point that, that Peter is making going back to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, when standing before those thousands of hostile Jews, and keep in mind that some of these Jews were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And in Acts chapter 2, again, in verse number 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you or proven to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Here Peter is saying, you know about the miracles of Jesus. You people saw Jesus work. You saw the evidence that he gave to confirm who he was. Jesus proved himself by his miracles. Verse 23, he says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again. Put it an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. You look at verse 32. In verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. We saw this. And then in verse 36, he says, Therefore, that all the Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Notice how Peter says that these people could know for certain. They could believe with confidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be because of the miracles he performed when he was on the earth and ultimately also because God raised him from the dead and he was seen all over the place. Peter says the resurrection of Jesus is the evidence God has given us to believe that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ. You put that with what Paul says in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1 and verse number 4, when talking about Jesus, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Notice how there Paul says that the resurrection not only declares Jesus to be the Son of God, but it declares him to be the Son of God with power. The Son of God with power. Someone says power were to do what? Well, my friend, power were to do everything. Power to save us. Power to judge us. Power to raise us up when he comes again. Power to bring us into heaven so we can live with God for eternity. You see, here in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 4, the apostle Paul is telling us that the resurrection, the resurrection verifies everything about Jesus. It verifies that he is everything that he claimed to be and that he's capable of doing everything that he has promised. Without the resurrection, brothers and sisters, Jesus would be the biggest liar and deceiver in the history of the world. But with the resurrection, everything about him is validated. Everything he claimed is validated. Everything he taught and, and even everything that he promised, it's all validated. But it's what you to see is the resurrection is so important. It is the key cornerstone to our faith because it verifies the claims made by Jesus. It verifies the identity of Jesus, but not only does it verify the identity of Jesus, a second reason why the resurrection is important is because it also verifies and validates the apostles. 
Specifically, it validates the, the preaching of the apostles. I'm going to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I want to show you how the apostle Paul makes that very point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse number 12, Paul says that if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Notice that. Our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If, in fact, the dead are not raised. You see the point Paul is making there? Notice how there Paul says that when it came to his preaching and when it came to preaching to the preaching of all the apostles, he says that their preaching would be completely worthless and vain if the Lord did not come out of that tomb. He says their preaching, the very core of their preaching lies on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the Lord was not raised, then their preaching is vain. I want to submit to you that that is a big statement made by the Apostle Paul because like Jesus, we got to understand that the apostles also made a lot of radical claims in their preaching. Like Jesus, they also said a lot of stuff that certainly would have been considered extraordinary by those who heard them in the first century. For example, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there the apostle Peter said these words. He says, there is salvation in none other. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. What is Peter saying in that verse? Well, there in that verse, Peter is making the same claim that Jesus made in John 14 and verse 6. There Peter is claiming that Jesus is the only way to heaven. He is saying that Jesus is the only path that leads to eternal life. You put that with what Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9, Paul wrote these words, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice how here Paul says that those who practice homosexuality and those who get involved in drunkenness and those who get involved in sex outside of marriage and those who commit adultery, people who do those kinds of things and fail to repent, Paul says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says that these kinds of people will not go to heaven. What a very politically incorrect thing for him to say. And then when you go over and consider what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 21, Peter says that when it comes to baptism, and in this context, he's talking about water baptism. But Peter says that when it comes to, to water baptism, he says that process, baptism, 
now saves you. He says it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see the point we're making by reading all of these verses, brothers and sisters? Do you see how, like in the case of Jesus, the apostles also made a lot of extraordinary claims. They also said a lot of radical things about Jesus and about morality and about salvation. They also said a, a lot of stuff that is designed to impact the lives of human beings at a very high level. And if the Lord was not raised from the dead, do you know what that means about their doctrine? It means their doctrine is wrong. It means that their doctrine is error. It means that their doctrine, as they taught, should not just be rejected by me and you, but it should be rejected by, by every person on the planet. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we need to just reject everything that the apostles taught. And the main reason why we need to do that is because these men, the apostles, they claim to have seen a risen Jesus. They claim to have seen Jesus raised from the dead. And I understand, I understand, brothers and sisters, that there are a lot of people today who don't believe their testimony. But here is my question. My question is, why would these people lie? I mean, if we're going to accuse somebody of lying, then we better establish a motive. Why would these men lie? Why would they lie about the resurrection? Someone says, well, well, well Sean, I, I believe they lied to get rich. I, I believe they lied to get wealthy. I believe they lied to, to obtain vast sums of money. Really? Where's your evidence for that? Where's your evidence that the apostles got rich preaching about the resurrection of Jesus? I ask you that because when you carefully consider the evidence, the evidence actually proves the opposite. The, the evidence actually demonstrates that the majority of the apostles were not wealthy men at all. In fact, most of them were nothing more than poor, uneducated fishermen. There's no evidence that the apostles got rich preaching about a risen Jesus, but someone else says, well, I believe they lied to, to obtain fame. I believe they lied to become famous. I believe they lied to become popular in their time. While it is true that in our time, in the 21st century, when we think about the apostles, we think of them typically as Christians and in high regards. We view them in high esteem. That's true in the 21st century, but in the first century, the evidence shows us that they were not viewed that way by the majority of people in the world. The evidence shows us that they were not viewed in high regard by the first century Roman world, instead of achieving, achieving fame, they, they were viewed as infamous. They received persecution. They received beatings and scars and threats and mockings and ridicules and imprisonment, and in some cases, even death. 
In fact, tradition tells us that with the exception being the apostle John, every apostle died a horrible death. Every apostle either got his head cut off or he was stoned or he was burned or he was even crucified. The the apostles died because they preached about a a risen Jesus. And I know somebody's thinking right now, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Sean. What about the terrorists? What, What about the Islamic extremist? I mean, doesn't he also die for what he believes? What makes the Apostle Paul so much different than than the Islamic extremists? Well, my friend, I'll tell you what makes Paul and Peter and James and John so much different than that person. You see, the difference between the Islamic extremists and the apostles is the Islamic extremist or the Islamic terrorist, he doesn't realize that the cause he's advocating is a lie. He he doesn't realize at the time that he's not going to go to some paradise because he's strapping a bomb to himself and blowing up a bus. Unfortunately, he has to learn after he dies that the cause he's advocating is a lie. But that's not the same situation as the apostles. Okay, You see, in the case of the apostles, They were not dying for something that they hoped to be true. Instead, they were dying for something that they said knew was true. They were dying for something that they testified with their mouths was true. They were dying for something that they said they saw with their own eyes was true. That's very different than what you find in the situation of the Islamic terrorists. The apostles died because of their testimony. In fact, not only did they die for their testimony, but their lives were also radically changed by their testimony. In the case of Peter, he transformed from being a man who was afraid to acknowledge he followed Jesus to a servant girl in the courtyard of the high priest on the night Jesus was arrested. He transformed. Formed from being that cowardly man to 50 days later being the man who had the courage to stand before thousands of hostile Jews in the city of Jerusalem and preach about the resurrection of Jesus. He transformed into that kind of man in less than two months. And then in the case of Paul, he transformed from being a man who persecuted Christians who who took pleasure in seeing the sufferings of Christians who actually went from house to house and drug Christians out of their homes and threw them in jail. He transformed from being that kind of man to eventually being a man who would become a Christian, who would preach the gospel and even give his life for the gospel because he was unwilling to compromise the gospel's message. Men like Peter and Paul were chained. By the resurrection of Jesus, and I want to submit to you that the reason why they were changed is because they had to have seen it. They had to have seen it. The resurrection is so important because it validates Jesus. And it validates the apostles. And then finally, I want to suggest it also validates our faith.
It validates our faith. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 14, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith, your faith as a Christian, it's also vain. You go over to verse 16 of that same chapter, and he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if we've hoped in Christ in this life only. We are all men most to be pitied. You know, I think as Christians, we can all agree that there is nothing more important than our faith, right? I mean, our faith is everything. Our faith is what motivates us. Our faith is what binds us and makes us a spiritual family despite our trivial differences. Our faith is what motivates us to continue trying to find ways to worship God, even though it's it's not safe in our society right now. Our faith is what motivates us to do evangelism and to pray and read our Bibles. And and it's what convicts our conscience whenever we're tempted to do something sinful. Our faith is what comforts us when someone we love dies in the Lord. Our faith is what assures us that there has to be life after death. There has to be a heaven and there has to be a hell. Our faith is what motivates, motivated us to, to allow somebody to immerse us in water for the forgiveness of our sins. As Christians, our faith, our faith is everything. But let me tell you something. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then my faith and your faith is absolutely worthless. It is vain. It is dead. And we're still in our sins. See, the reason why the resurrection is so important is because it validates. It validates our faith as Christians. It validates what we believe about the Old Testament. It validates that the stories we grew up learning from the Old Testament since the time we were little kids, those stories are true. It validates the creation account in Genesis. It validates Noah and the flood and the exodus and Jonah spending three days in the belly of a fish and and even the the talking serpent that spoke to Eve in the Garden of Eden. The resurrection validates everything found in the Old Testament and it also validates everything found in the New Testament. It also validates everything that the gospel says about Jesus. It validates his virgin birth. It validates his preaching and his miracles and his death and his burial and even his ascension into heaven. It validates the need to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of our sins. It is the key foundation stone to our faith. And I thank my God that it really happened. I thank God that the identity of Jesus and the preaching of the apostles and the core aspects of our faith are all confirmed to be true. Because 2,000 years ago, God's son came up out of that tomb and he showed the world that he had power even over death. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for another day of life and health and strength. Thank you for the resurrection of your son. Thank you for the hope that is found in your son. Thank you 
for accepting his sacrifice on the cross and sending him into this world to die for us and be raised and have an opportunity to be saved. We give you the glory for the resurrection. We ask you to bless us to live lives that always demonstrate our appreciation for it. And always please give us the courage to go into the world and share the facts of the resurrection to as many people as we can. In Jesus' name, amen.